I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. And we are coming to you from the middle of a quarantine. We are. <laughs> Who would have ever thought when we did our last episode that it was going to go this mental? It's mad, isn't it? So we're recording this, well, the day it's going to go out, actually, 22nd of March. Uh, we are self-isolating like the rest of the world should be. Yes. Although not everyone is. And I honestly thought that when this was starting to go just a little bit crazy and looked like we would have more time, that we'd get a lot more of this done. But no, running behind as always. I think it doesn't help though, because obviously we've got uh, my two children. Have Obviously they've been off school. Um, my son was sent, well, he didn't go into school on Tuesday because he wasn't feeling very well. He had a high temperature. So I was like, oh shit. So obviously he kept <laughs> him home. I've been yep. working from home with two children in the house trying to keep them occupied as well. It's been a challenge. And to top it all off, we've now got a cat that swallowed a piece of string and keeps vomiting everywhere and then re-eating the string before we can get to it. Yeah, so she's like vomits it out, hangs out of her mouth and then we run toward her to try to get it and she's like, ah, no, no, I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> no, Pixie, no. I, I hope no one's eating their breakfast. <laughs> yeah, sorry for that, too much information. Anyway, enough fun and games. Let's go on with the podcast. Today we have the case of John and Joan Sterland. Saturday 30th of August 2003 is a date that will be memorable to some. Stella McCartney, daughter of Beatle Paul McCartney, married Alastair Willis on the Scottish Isle of Butte, while across the pond in Los Angeles, the family of Charles Bronson mourned the passing of the famous actor. It was also sadly a date that would stick in the memory of the family of Marvin Bradshaw. Michael O'Brien and Gary Salmon had been barred from an after-hours drinking session at the Sporting Chance pub in Bullwell, Nottingham. O'Brien was hit on the head with a bottle or an ashtray during a row at the door of the pub, causing a cut above his eye. The pair then went back to Salmon's house, where they dressed in dark clothing, gloves and balaclavas, collected a single barrel shotgun and headed back to the pub. Marvin Bradshaw, who had not been involved in the original incident which had upset O'Brien, was driving away in a car with three friends after the lock-in had ended. O'Brien shot at their car, hitting Bradshaw in the head and causing him to die almost immediately. But as tragic as the shooting of Marvin Bradshaw by Michael O'Brien was, it's not the case we're covering today. His murder is pertinent, though, as also in the car when he was killed was Marvin's best friend, Jamie Gunn, just 18 at the time, who held Marvin as he died. Michael O'Brien of Aspley, Nottingham, was the son of a woman called Joan Sterland from her previous marriage. Jamie Gunn was the nephew of Colin Gunn, who was a crime boss with his own criminal empire in the Nottingham area. Jamie Gunn died on August 2nd, 2004, aged just 19 years old, and although the official cause of death given was listed as pneumonia, it's largely accepted that he was on a downward spiral caused by drink and drugs after witnessing the shooting of his best friend. He left behind a five and a half month old son, Reese. Which, I've got to point out, is spelt wrong. R-H-I-E-C-E. I say wrong, I mean, obviously you can name your kids what you like and spell them how you like, but that's an odd spelling of it's, the word, Reese. It's a spelling that is going to ensure that every single teacher will always question it or get it wrong. Yeah. And you will always be spelling it down the phone to people. Yep. And I should hold my hands up here and say, my kids got unusual names, so I can't really talk. When O'Brien was arrested, he blamed the murder on Gary Salmon, who he'd been with on the night in question. 
Salmon was a friend of his who was already known to police. Salmon, aged 32 at the time, was said to have associates across the country and went by a string of nicknames, including Fish, Lol and G. Very interesting nicknames. Yeah, I don't think that's how we refer to it when we did the run-through, but we'll stick with that because it's a gangster. Very interesting <laughs> nicknames. It was the courageous testimony of two teenage girls who were in Salmon's flat one night that led to a conviction. One of them heard O'Brien say, quote, I shot him, he was a bad man, end quote. Peter Joyce, the prosecuting QC, do we need to describe what a QC is for our foreign listeners? We might have to. It stands for um, Queen's Council. Mm-hmm. And that is basically um, someone who represents people in court uh, and either prosecutes or defends. Yeah. So like a barrister in America, I suppose? I think probably, yes. And they're the ones who wear the fancy gowns. And the wigs. And the wigs. The curly wigs. The curly wigs. Getting completely sidetracked. Peter Joyce, the prosecuting QC, described to the jury what happened at Salmon's flat that night, saying, quote, O'Brien was given the gun and pointed it at one of the girls. He pulled the trigger and there was a click. He said, that's what I'm going to do to him, end quote. I just have to say, how fucking terrifying would that be to you as a teenage girl who's hanging out? I mean, why are they hanging out in some old bloke's flat yep. at that time? But you're there and they point a gun at you and pull the trigger. I know. How do you know for definite that's not loaded? I know, it's horrible, isn't it? I would have wet myself. And then he probably would have shot you. <laughs> probably. <laughs> the men left the flat on foot and headed towards the pub. Minutes later, one of the girls heard a bang, which was also heard by the landlady of the pub. A Renault Laguna car with the driver's window smashed was seen by police officers nearby on a grass verge. Michael O'Brien was later jailed for life for Marvin Bradshaw's murder. Gary Salmon had disappeared immediately after the killing, before he eventually was caught and jailed for life for his part in the Marvin Bradshaw murder. As he passed the sentence, Judge Richard Powell... I think we can all agree that is not a very judgy name, not compared to some of the ones we've had. We've had some great judgy names, that's not one. Judge Richard Powell told him, quote, You killed a wholly innocent man and have shown absolutely no remorse. It was a deliberate and calculated murder, end quote. When O'Brien was found guilty of murder... He reacted by throwing a glass of water over the public gallery before ranting at the parents of the man he had killed, Lyndon and Christine, telling them, quote, I'm not bothered. I'm a bad boy. It means nothing to me. Your son looked like a donut with a big hole in his head. I know where you live. End quote. Wow. What a wanker. I don't know how I would react as a parent if my child had been killed and the person who did it came out with that. I mean, you're being caught. You couldn't react, could you? But... I think you would just have to sit there and go, what a wanker. I hope karma gets him. Fucking twat. He was ordered to serve a minimum of 24 years, but this was not enough to satisfy Colin Gunn, who'd seen his nephew, Jamie, spiral out of patrol after witnessing his best friend dying in his arms. A former undercover police officer who worked alongside Colin Gunn told the media, quote, Jamie and Colin were very close. Colin made up his mind that because of what happened to Jamie, O'Brien and his family were going to get the same, end quote. In other words, Michael O'Brien's imprisonment wasn't enough for Gunn, and it left only Michael's mother and stepfather as targets for a revenge attack by the members of Gunn's Bestwood crime cartel gang. John and Joan Sterland lived in Carlton, Nottingham. Just three days after O'Brien was arrested, shortly after 10pm on a Sunday evening, shots were fired through their windows of their home. Naturally terrified and fearing for their lives, the couple told police 
and moved out that same night. They didn't stay in one place. They moved to North Yorkshire and then back to Nottingham before leaving police protection, moving to what they hoped would be a safe, peaceful life in a bungalow in Trustthorpe, a small coastal village in Lincolnshire, about 12 miles from Skegness. Trustthorpe is described as an isolated retirement and holiday community, an ideal choice for a couple trying to stay out of the public eye. Renting a property, their landlord described them as perfect tenants, revealing that Mr Sterland was claiming housing benefit in the name of Johan Stierland. Wow. I know, you can tell their son was obviously a master <laughs> criminal, but they, bless them. John Sterland to Johan Stierland. I know. It's not much of a change. But then it seems to, it had worked for quite, you know, it seemed to work for quite a while. It's true. I suppose it's different enough, isn't it? Yes. It's believed that the couple had been living under those assumed names in Lincolnshire for about six months. The move was triggered after a group of men had visited them late at night at their home in Carlton and told them they had 24 hours to get out or face the consequences. I assume that was around the time they had the shots fired through the window. I would imagine so. Escaping 80 miles away, you'd think that they'd stand a chance at remaining anonymous, but around two weeks before their death, whilst John Sterland was walking along the beach near his new home, he bumped into a family friend who happened to be visiting from Nottingham. How's your luck? I know. Gossip being gossip, the Sterlings' new life became the talk of their former hometown, especially in the pubs on what is described as the notorious St Anne's housing estate, where the couple had once lived. I need to just interrupt you there and say, well done for saying hometown and not home time, like I wrote in the script. <laughs> I did. My, my brain did go, what? <laughs> Before our hearts break at the targeting of two innocent people, there's a few reports online about the less palatable side of the Sterlings. One ex-neighbour, an anonymous source, which, as we know from the Joanna Yates case that we covered a couple of months ago, is a really easy cop-out way for press to say what they want to say and not attribute it to anyone, was quoted as saying, quote, Joan was a nuisance. She was always shouting her mouth off about Michael. She would stick up for Michael, saying he would come out and shoot the others. It was drunken pub talk. I heard that people paid them a visit and told them they had two choices, either to stay there and have constant trouble or leave within 24 hours. They've not been seen around here since. I just think it's worth saying as well at this point that we say, you know, that they were a nuisance, but I think clearly it was Joan who was the gobby one. I don't yeah. I didn't see anything in our research about John, the the husband, being particularly aggressive at all. No, you're right actually, and all the way through this, there's no mention of him being a pain. No. Um, and there were a couple of reports of people saying that he was quite nice, if she was the gobby one. Yeah. It seems that fearing for their lives didn't make Joan Sterling keep her head down at all. In Trustthorpe, her new neighbours said that Joan had been insulting other players at a local bingo game, leading to her being thrown out of the contest. Classy. I know, right? <laughs> the reason that Gunn's group is often referred to as a cartel crime gang is down to the sheer power and scope of his operation. Colin Gunn had a man by the name of Charles Fletcher join Nottinghamshire Police at the age of 19, thus giving Gunn and his cronies access to a corrupt police officer. Now, when I was writing this, I had to stop because I want to find out what police officers earn. Mm-hmm. So, how much do you think a corrupt police officer would get paid by gun? And for reference, according to Google, the starting salary for police constables in England, Wales and Northern Ireland is from around 21000 to 24000 and it rises to just over 40000 at the top end of the scale. So, how much do you think Colin Gunn, the crime boss, was paying this guy on top? I don't know, maybe 15000 Okay. Charles Fletcher was being paid £2,000 per month by gun on top of his normal salary. As of 2020, after tax, that would be equivalent to about £30,000 a year. 
uh, you numpty. You don't think he's going to be paying tax on that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Colin Dell was putting it through the books. Yeah. I'd just like to declare to HMRC that I'm earning an additional... <laughs> um, no, all right, OK. I should have said that he was taking home £2,000 a month and that is the equivalent of a job earning thirty grand if it was a fully paid job you're paying tax on. Smart ass. <laughs> Fair enough. And what does that kind of money buy you? Well, we know that at the very least, Colin Gunn hoped it would buy him the address of the Sterlings, but apparently Fletcher either couldn't or wouldn't get that information for Gunn. And if I'm honest, I suspect he couldn't rather than wouldn't. I wonder, maybe this is why um, Sterlings had not gone or had left police protection. Ah, because they kept getting found out. And... I wonder if they were worried that there was an insider and that's why they had gone off on their own. That would make sense, I suppose. Mm. Was the extra money worth it for Charles Fletcher? No. In 2006, he got jailed for seven years for corruption. In the end, it was a former British Telecoms employee called Stephen Poundall. Not Poundland, as the original script said. <laughs> Until I, I did this when I was tired. <laughs> I thought it was a typo. <laughs> um, Stephen Poundall, who contacted his ex-colleagues, who still worked at BT, asking them to search the computer systems. They did this. They found the address details and they handed over the address of the Sterlins. It should be noted that none of them, including Poundall, knew why the address was wanted. Poundall was later convicted of illegally disclosing the information which led Gunn to the Sterlins. The two BT employees, Anthony Kelly and Andrew Pickering, later admitted computer misuse and they received suspended sentences and were both sacked from BT. Said to enforce his leadership with extreme violence, stories abound of Colin Gunn breaking people's knuckles with a hammer or baseball bat, as well as nailing their hands to tables. Oh, Ouch. I feel a bit sick at that. Do you know what? My immediate thought when I read this was how much it reminded me of the stories of the craze. Mm. Uh, in fact, that was just reinforced when I read the next bit as well. Their public persona was different, though. Apparently, to this day in Bestwood, local residents still talk fondly about a fireworks display organised by Gunn one year. And they're quick to tell the story of how they once gave £100 to an old lady in her birthday card. Oh, how lovely. I know, right? They never pick on their own. No. Well. It was around 10.30pm on Saturday, the 7th of August, that a neighbour of the Sterlins noticed a man lurking by their front door. She didn't report it that night, but she spoke to Joan Sterling the next morning. Joan rang Nottinghamshire Police rather than the local Lincolnshire Police, as she had stayed in touch with them ever since the shooting. An officer called her back around 2pm that day to discuss things. The police insist that Mrs Sterland was concerned but not panicked, stressing that she wanted them to be aware of what had happened but that she wanted discretion. I suppose if you're on the run from armed nutters, you don't really want police cars screeching into your house with blues and twos going. Yes. Do you know what blues and twos refers to? Yeah, it's um, it's the lights and the... Nino, Nino, Nino. <laughs> the two-tone, Nino, Nino. <laughs> the two-tone. <laughs> Or Nino Ninos, yeah. Nino Ninos. I think Nino Ninos. <laughs> yeah, um, American people, yeah, or, or sirens sound different to yours. <laughs> yes. Minutes after Joan had put the phone down, two men wearing boiler suits and baseball caps pulled up outside the Sterlings' home in a black Volkswagen Passat. They got out, leaving the hazard lights flashing. Not long after that, they returned to the car and drove off. The bungalow door was left ajar in their wake. Two miles away, they dumped the Passat in a quiet country lane and set it alight. It was later confirmed the car had been stolen on the 31st of July from, believe it or not, Nottinghamshire. 
Such a strange coincidence. Yes, how funny. Having fled from their previous home in Nottingham eight months before, after their house in a quiet suburban street in the Carlton district of the city had shots fired at it, they would have rightly expected a quick response from the police. The officer from Nottingham Police passed this message on to the Lincolnshire Police the same afternoon that he had spoken to Joan. Naturally, being 2004 and the police forces in the UK being completely up to date with technology, this was done by fax. In case you're wondering if email was common back then, yes, it was. I worked in large and small companies between 2000 and 2004. They all had emails. Yes. Unfortunately, Lincolnshire Police had no previous intelligence about the threat level that the Stirlings faced, as it was recorded under Nottinghamshire Police, and thus they didn't treat it as a priority. The duty inspector in the Lincolnshire control room that day was Phil Parkinson. He said the fact was on a sole piece of paper and made reference to shots being fired at the Stirlings' previous home in Nottingham. The facts also made reference to reports of a prowler at the Stirlings' home, and even though the couple were known targets, Parkinson was quoted as saying, quote, My answer to why I didn't deploy armed officers at the time was that, based on the information I had, I didn't have enough to suggest a serious enough risk assessment. Yeah, because everyone's house has shots fired at it. I know. He continued, It was one page, so of course it didn't go into any massive detail, and I'm pretty sure it didn't mention the name gun on there. It might have done, but not that I can remember. End quote. Pretty sure it didn't mention the name gun. As long as you're pretty sure, I mean, two people's lives are at risk, but you're pretty sure it didn't mention a known crime boss in the facts. What I don't understand is why he couldn't check this before he gave his quote. I can't believe they couldn't find that facts for reference. No. Probably because he screwed it up and threw it into a ball in the corner, yeah. thinking, oh, unimportant. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming this was at court and, and he was on the witness stand, but you would think they'd have all that stuff ready for him. I would have thought so. It wasn't until 9.30pm that officers visited the property, by which time the couple were already dead, having been shot in what the press said at the time appeared to be a gangland-style killing by two men dressed in black and wearing baseball caps. They were seen making their way into the semi-detached bungalow on Radio St Peter's, the main road through Trustthorpe. When questioned, neighbours commented that they thought the bungalow was rented, saying that although the couple didn't mix with neighbours or the local community, they were keen gardeners. One neighbour went on to say that their young grandchildren, who'd been visiting, had only left the day before. I can't help but think that if you're hiding from a known crime boss like that, I would not be seeing that much of my family. Yeah, there's a few bits and pieces scattered throughout this where you just think they're not really laying low. No. Um, they chose to leave police protection, which, as we said, might be because they, they thought someone was dobbing them in. But then they've clearly stayed in touch with police. Yep. Because they phoned up. And then, say, you wouldn't have your family hobnobbing around for visits if you thought that there was a chance they were going to be followed. And... Bumping into someone on the local beach, you wouldn't say, we live locally, this is our local beach. You'd be saying, imagine seeing you here. You've driven 80 miles from Nottingham. We've driven 100 miles from Birmingham. Yes. Which I'm assuming they didn't do. No. Criminal psychologist Dr David Holmes said, quote, Colin Gunn was a larger-than-life character who grew to be the gang lord of the Bestwood estate. He was someone who produced fear in the entire area, he was someone who had nobody to oppose him. The police were really frightened to tread foot in there. He was someone who would get you, or he would get your family if you didn't do what he said. End quote. Neil Woods, a former undercover detective who managed to infiltrate the gun cartel, said, quote, Colin Gunn is one of the most vicious gangsters that I've had any connection with as a police officer. He is essentially a thug, 
End quote. That's a fucking understatement, isn't it? I know. Nailing <laughs> people's hands to tables. It's a bit of a thug. <sighs> Thanks to CCTV and mobile phone records, it didn't take police long to link the crime back to Colin Gunn. It was revealed in court that police attracted over 7,000 phone calls during the investigation. When they arrested Gunn, he was quick to claim innocence, telling police when interviewed that he was just on holiday at a caravan park close to where the killings took place and that he went there most weekends. I don't understand this. Why on earth would he be anywhere near the murder scene? Surely one of the key benefits of being a crime boss is that you could be miles away from the scene of any crime that you initiate and that gives you the perfect alibi. Yeah, and also I think you wouldn't want to be directly involved in it all either. You've no. got all these other associates. He could be saying to one person, tell Bob to tell Sue to tell Fred to get on it yeah. and then stand right back and just let things happen. Yeah. Colin probably felt overly confident. Despite having been implicated in no less than four murders and over 50 shootings, he hadn't been charged with a single crime since 1998. In fact, even that crime in October 1998 shows Gunn's influence. Colin was arrested for a brutal attack with others on a man outside the Astoria, now Ocean nightclub, near the back of the Broadmarsh Centre. Oddly, the CCTV footage mysteriously went missing. Uh, Funny that. I wonder if that was down to his insider friend. Mm, I won't. Colin Gunn got a few hundred hours community service, and even then, he paid someone else to do it for him. I didn't even know you could do that. You can't. (laughs) There you go, then. (laughs) And ultimately... Nobody was convicted of the murder of John and Joan Sterland. On the 30th of June 2006, Colin Gunn was sentenced to 35 years for conspiring to murder the Sterlands. Now, I didn't even know that was a thing that you could get 35 years for, to be fair. It seems an awful lot for not being able to prove anything. I presume it's that we know you did it, but we can't quite prove it. Cop out. His passing remarks to the jury were, quote, Thank you, you scumbags. I hope you die of cancer. End quote. Before calling the judge a paedophile. You can't buy class. <laughs> I, just, I know. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> he got a further nine years to run concurrently with his life term in 2007 for conspiring to corrupt Nottinghamshire police officers. His corruption of having trainee detective Charles Fletcher in his pocket had finally caught up with him. If he ever makes it out of prison, he will be 75 years old. The day after the trial, gun supporters rioted in Bestwood, with around 30 people setting fire to cars and causing £10,000 worth of damage. That's what, one new car? (laughs) Now, I've been to Bestwood. It's probably at least 10 or more if you're in the wrong part. (laughs) If you're in the wrong part. So we should just say, hi, Tanya, who who I assume lives in the right part. She does. She lives in a lovely part of Bestwood. Yeah, I've been to Bestwood and some parts of it are really lovely and some parts are not. Just like pretty much anywhere in the UK. Yes, I've got to say, 30 people and £10,000 worth of damage, that's a shit riot. It really is. It really is. Uh, John Russell got a minimum of 30 years. Michael McNee received at least 25 years, both for the same offence as Gunn. And I can only assume that the latter two of these were expected to be the gunmen. I believe so. An inquest said that a series of failures by Nottinghamshire police contributed to the deaths of the couple and cleared Lincolnshire police of any wrongdoing, which I thought was odd because Lincolnshire police were the ones that didn't pick up on the fact that they were being murdered on their doorstep. Yeah, despite being warned. Yeah, I think it's another one. I mean, I hate to say it, but quite often the police do tend to, again, they look after their own. And really, yeah, there there should have been some sort of repercussions, even if it's just a case of retraining on how to handle a fax from another force. Yeah. 
looking through a one-page fax to see if there's any important information in there, maybe. Yes. And that is a story of the murder of John and Joan Sterling. What are your thoughts? So my, my question really is, if you were uh, Michael O'Brien's parent, um, how, how would you handle that? You've had this threat against your life. You've got to obviously move out of the area. How would you handle it? Would you stay in police protection? Would you move abroad? Would you move down the road as they did? Would you stay in touch with your family in that way? I suppose you'd want to, wouldn't you? You'd want to move far enough away that you were far enough away, but far enough away that you were close enough to see who you wanted to see. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't want to stop seeing my family. No. But then neither. would you be taking the risk or not? I don't know. I don't think you want to actually see them anywhere just in case I brought danger to them. Yeah. Oh, it's a tough one. Yeah. What about the teenage girls who gave testimony in court? Would you be brave enough, especially at that age, to go up in court against someone that you know is a murderer and give evidence? I'm not sure if I would. That's, that's a hell of a thing to do. I don't think I would have been. And not at that age. No. Maybe um, now, but... Yeah. But yeah. not then. But what about you? Would you? And that's everything we've got for today. Mm. Let us know your thoughts. And um, I hope everyone is staying in and staying safe in this really rather weird, unprecedented time. Yes. Yes, self-isolation and social distancing. Self-isolation across the nation. Oh, God. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com. And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com. Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.